leave for the car wash has been canceled due to confusion. Well, that concludes this morning's announcements. I'm Seymour Skinner, and stand by to resume learning in five, four, three, Ugh, two... It's hard enough to keep the kids awake without you, Seymour. Welcome to another episode of Square Waves FM. I'm your host, Bianca. We have my co-host, Brian. Hi. And uh, our lovely mascot, Joey, who may or may not chime in today. Yeah, right, as if she wouldn't. Hi, guys. Hi. Hello. How are you? As if they're going to answer us. Oh, how rude. I know. What do we even do this for? I don't know. Well, actually, I guess we did get a couple of responses, didn't we? We got a voicemail and an email this week. Yep, we got... The- Although, thankfully, it's not one of those that... You know, 20 or 30 minute long voicemails. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's five or six minutes. That'll do. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. But we did get a, um, but we did get a uh, letter from Father King Beast. Father King Beast? Yeah. Is he a king? Well, given the length of that email, I'm thinking he's uh, giving Stephen King a run for his money. Oh, that king. Oh, okay. I thought maybe he, like, referred to himself in the plural or something. <laughs> mm. I don't know. Maybe he has. Well, he's we'll have to find our, out. Yep. Well, has he ever been on our podcast? No, only textually. Ah. Uh, contextually. <laughs> I don't know. Watch your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so today's topic is e-learning. Electronic learning. Ooh. <laughs> and birds. And birds? I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure someone will tell us about birds. Hey, Joey. No? No. But she's uh, playing with her toy. She's going to. Uh, Occasionally makes sweet noises. So what's <laughs> so what's on our oh politics on our podcast? Although I think we might get some of that next week on the fourth. If, oh. Oh no. Well, right, what's next week? Well, we got uh, someone different joining us. Who's uh, not in our regular circle jerk? Oh, that we do. You really didn't need to put it that way, but yes, correct. But <laughs> hey, anyway, you call it the circle. Hey, the guys that we had on last time called it a circle jerk. And that was the party tornado, I think. That's still a circle jerk. Yeah, well, we <laughs> refer to our kind of podcast continuum here as the circle jerk, just because on uh, this week's nostalgia pod, nostalgia road trip podcast. Uh, hello, uh, uh, Robert and Edgar. Um, they had uh, our good buddy Dust Nostalgic uh, Anatoly. On the show, Mm-mm. so we were just kind of commenting that uh, in our little uh, in our little uh, circle of uh, podcasting friends, we all kind of wind up on each other's shows, don't we? And in some case, some of them just hijack it. <laughs> this is perhaps true, but uh, that's quite all right because we're it, it, we're very fortunate to have such an awesome friend, uh, like-minded uh, group of friends. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. Basically, what we're saying is, it doesn't matter which of our podcasts you listen to, you're going to hear the same voices, but we really don't care. We're happy to have such good friends. Yes, we are. So anyway, politics on the podcast. I put this on the list just because I, I, I never really read our letters before reading them on the show, but I glanced briefly at Father Beast's uh, letter, and it mentioned something about us bringing up politics on the show last week, which was that thing about uh, replacing machines with minimum or replacing minimum wage workers with machines, yeah, or low skilled workers with machines. Mm-hmm. 
But I just wanted to briefly address that, just to say that we're really not going to make this a political podcast. I know, I don't, I don't know. We don't want to make anyone uncomfortable or anything. But yeah, uh, and if you want to contradict us, you're completely welcome to. Yeah, that was kind of my point. I, I want we we absolutely invite people to disagree with us or to chime in on whatever topics they like. <laughs> you know, we're not. We're open to civil discourse here. When have we ever been open to civil things? I don't know when what I throw you off you the balcony. <laughs> That's civil. What? <laughs> listen, to, listen to Joey. Does that sound civil to you? I think she might. Is she, um, She's she happy. So it's much better than last night's squawkathon. Oh my gosh, what a brat she was last night. <laughs> so anyway, we uh, yeah. If we if we ever say anything that you disagree with, whether it's factual or opinion or political or whatever, like we're a hundred percent open to uh, contrasting. Opinions. We love being we love being contradicted. We love learning new stuff. So, just because we say something, that doesn't mean that's the way it is. It's probably just our opinion. Yep, or what we know to be true until we get the new information. Yeah. So, on that topic, anyway, though, on the topic of uh, of uh, the replacing uh, unskilled workers with machines, there's been a couple of little updates on that. Um, the Foxconn company which uh, is in China. They make a lot of uh, smartphone parts and assembly. I know that they work for Apple and for Samsung, and I'm not sure who else, but probably a lot, because they have hundreds of thousands of workers. They're like a monstrously big company. Um, It's easy when there's a population of over a billion people. Yeah, I guess so. And a lot of unsatisfied men. (laughs) What? A lot of unsatisfied men who can't find women, so they're going to go work instead. Well, I think... (laughs) Okay, sure. (laughs) I've, I've heard a lot of stories about uh, worker conditions there and uh, people having to send all of their paycheck home to their families, which is kind of the way that they structure their company because people work there and live there and sleep there for months at a time on end without visiting home. And Until New Year's comes, in which case everyone goes home and makes big traffic jabs everywhere. Oh, perhaps. I've read, I read news stories that say that, you know, that they, they make, it's so, there's so much traffic that it makes like a news story. I've heard about that in China in general. I don't know if that particularly has to do with this company, although with the population of people that they hire, it's possible. But uh, they just announced anyway that they were planning to replace 60,000 employees with robots, which is really, um, it's just a staggering number of people. That's insane. More people were evacuated from Fort McMurray than they're laying off. Yeah, exactly. That's an amazing yeah, that's number like, of people. Origi- that was the original number that was evacuated, and that's a huge number. Yeah, it's like a major sports stadium full of people about to become unemployed, so that's an incredible number. Mm-hmm. Um, likewise, uh, a former McDonald's CEO commenting on the proposal to raise... Uh, the U.S. minimum wage, I think it was from $15, sorry, from $13 to 15 The former CEO just kind of commented, not not as someone who works at McDonald's, but just as a financial dude, that it would be less expensive to purchase $35,000 robotic arms to assemble meals and sandwiches than it would be to employ human beings to do that job. Human beings who are, you know, chaotic and unreliable. Some are better than others. That was just an interesting comment, but that they said they had no plans. The company responded saying they had no plans to do so. But it was an interesting, I don't know, it's an interesting thing to think of. Surely there is some break point, as Foxconn has, uh, has demonstrated, where it becomes more desirable to employ machinery than human beings for jobs. 
True, because then you have less to worry about for safety conditions. Yeah, safety, productivity, all kinds of all kinds of things. There's like we said last week. There's things that humans do that a machine could never do, but uh, repetitive assembly line tasks are probably not one of those. Machines aren't tuned to do for uh, anything requiring the better part of discretion, empathy, or or, or great judgment. Yeah, that's right. With the exception of Doctor Spazzo, you played Doctor Spazzo with me, the talking yes psychologist. That was, that was pretty cool. That is pretty cool. But I don't want Dr. Spazzo building my smartphone or my hamburgers, that's for sure. Why not? You're afraid he might um, go empathetic with it and uh, tell you about its plight and where the, uh, and how it was. This used to be somebody's uh, mother and now it's uh, your dinner. Yeah, I don't want to hear about the, the tribulations of transistors. <laughs> Ooh, unintentional alliteration. <laughs> I think I score some kind of a point for that. All right, next, next on my news list here is... I don't know too much about this story. I'm kind of mentioning this in passing just to kind of put a call out to you guys, the listeners, to see whether one of you maybe can describe this situation better. Um, there was like a five or maybe six-year lawsuit between Google, Google and Oracle. In this corner, we have Oracle. And in this corner, we have this other heavy hitter who claims to do no evil, but isn't doing evil. Google. Well, that yeah, that is actually not a not an incorrect uh, description here, I suppose, because there's analysis kind of showing the pros and cons of the uh, Oracle Sun Java lawsuit versus Google. My layman's understanding is that Google went ahead and used the Sun Java, or is it Oracle Sun Oracle Java? I don't know APIs to build their Android operating system. And Oracle is saying that they owe, that Google owes massive licensing fees to the tune of, like, I forget, like $9 billion or something like that. Whereas Google is saying that APIs are not something that need to be licensed, that they are available to everyone for free. Um, and so they should be able to use it free of charge. So I think this has gone back and forward. It, uh, there's been appeals and stuff. I think first Google won, then Oracle appealed, and they won, and now Google has done the latest appeal, and they won again, and Oracle says they're going to appeal again. So what a ridiculous situation this is. And some of the analysis, I'm sure, correctly indicates that the only people winning anything here are the lawyers who are getting paid massive bucks. Oh, come bucks. on. Anytime there's a lawsuit with appeals, the lawyers always win. Mm-hmm. So, they want people to go continue going to court. They don't care if you actually have the money. All they care about is what's in their pocket. Right. I'm sure that there are good lawyers out there, but... But the lawyers do win. Oh, sure. Well, I'm sure Oracle and Google have some of the best lawyers you could possibly have. So the judge said that Google using Java APIs could be constituted as fair use and that they didn't owe any damages to Oracle. Um, So one thing that I read, which I don't fully understand still, is that this concept of an API not requiring licensing by anyone was harmful to, like, the GNU public license, the GPL, and to, like, Apache license and other sorts of free software licenses. Um, I don't really want to talk any more about it because I know I'm going to get it wrong. I don't understand it properly. So for those of you who are more into programming or licensing or uh, legal matters having to do with uh, software uh, API use and stuff like that, please please uh, comment. I'd love to hear what you have to say about it. Yes. Please tell Brian how he's wrong. Well... Can't be wrong if I'm abstaining. Can't be wrong if I'm abstaining from comment, right? But you still commented. Man. All right. Next up. Yep. I read another article. Um, I put it in the show notes. Was it on the Verge? The Verge. Yes. This is an interesting one. I'd love to hear your opinion on this, Bianca. Uh, the, it poses the question: Would you pay for Android updates? 
So the context is that androids, the android, uh, android uh, marketplace or whatever, the android environments, its biggest issue is the disparity of the number of devices and the software OS version on those devices. Uh, Android latest version of their OS is Marshmallow. It came out, I don't know, six or seven or eight months ago or something now, and it's on like 7% of devices. Whereas Apple, when they release an, like a minor version of a software update, they have like 70% of devices upgraded within a week. And Android, it takes years for that kind of a number, which is ridiculous. So um, Google announced recently that they were going to shame and post the names of some of the most egregious offenders, some of the worst third-party companies, or sorry, some of the worst like handset manufacturers who are the slowest at upgrading their devices, trying to encourage them to update more quickly because it's up to the device manufacturers to update the software based on the hardware that is in their device. Mm -hmm. um, however, The Verge is arguing that this is counterproductive, that it, they're, it's not really the right way to go about it. And they interviewed one or two of the uh, device manufacturers, representatives. They said that the reason that they're so slow to update these devices, uh, it's twofold. Number one, of course, is the fact that if they don't update the, the devices, then people will be incentivized to buy the next device sooner because the new software version will be, you know, a major, uh, a major advantage over their old one. But primarily, the biggest reason that they only support those phones for a limited amount of time is because on the Android uh, ecosystem, there are so many manufacturers of devices that are all in competition that the margins are razor thin, which means that they only have, they can only afford so much manpower to continue working on software for a device. If they keep working on it more, they're going to have to raise the price of their device, and that means they won't sell it as well. So that was a really, I thought that was a very good counterpoint, because I've always criticized, uh, in my mind, companies who didn't update their devices quickly enough, but that's a very good reason, the fact that they'll lose money if they do it. So Bianca and I have only had uh, Nexus devices. Our first Android phone was the LG Optimus One, which was a cheap, a, a cheap, slow, small phone by but LG. But it served us well. It served us well, but I don't know if you remember, it had like Facebook on there, which you couldn't even uninstall. Ugh, it had a bunch of crapware on there, which we didn't want. That's why we got the Nexus device in the first place, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and since then, because we have Nexus devices, which are uh, managed by Google directly, that means those are the phones that the first phones to get a brand new operating system because it'll work out of the box, right, for Google's certified devices. Unless they've decided that we're not they're not doing it anymore, in which case, fuck you, go buy the new device. Yeah, well, Google says that they will support devices for two years after they're, they'll, they'll give software support for devices guaranteed for two years after the device is launched. I think they just extended that for Nexus devices to two and a half or three years. So our Nexus 5s are right up against that line now. Supposedly, we will get the next version, um, Android N. <laughs> Narshmallow, <laughs> as they jokingly called it, because they don't have a dessert name for it yet. But um, Oh, they should call it Nanaimo, after Nanaimo bars. Oh, that's a good one. Of course, uh, not everyone, I'm not sure how many people around the world have ever had Nanaimo bars. Yeah, I don't know if that's a Canadian thing <laughs> or what. I think that is a Canadian dessert. Mmm, Nanaimo. I know, they're so good. My mom used to make peanut butter Nanaimo bars. My those mother made classic Nanaimo bars. Well, those are good, too. Oh, they're so good. She only made them at Christmas. They're like and they chocolate like and butter. Oh, I know, they're totally indulgent. They're awesome. That is a good name. That hadn't even occurred to me. We should pitch that. That's a good name. Mm -hmm. um, 
So what's your take on it anyway? If we were to have a non-Nexus device, would you be willing to pay a fee for, like, continued software updates for that device? Um, well, would I still get my free updates? You. It sounds like what they would do is... They would, they would give you guaranteed updates for two years or something. Then they would work on another update and say, if you want the latest version of Android OS, pay us $10 and we'll send you the update. So what's your take on that? Is that something you would do? Um, not necessarily, because, I mean, if we're only keeping our phones for a couple of years anyways, and you, and you, and you, and you uh, have good security... On your phone, I don't see what the point of the of uh, paying for the update would be. That's and just it, I guess. It depends on whether you plan to replace your phone regularly. Because a ten dollar or a twenty dollar software update is a lot cheaper than a six hundred dollar phone. True, but it also depends on the kind of contract you have with your phone company. Because, for example, we were just looking at Win Mobile, and you could and we could um, go with an, a slightly older phone and pay less and put it under your Win tab. Yeah, it's true. It depends on where you are and what offers are available to you, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. And I think ideally, phone manufacturers want to sell more units rather than support, even paid support for existing units. Yeah. They have their own manufacturing and supply chain, and they have all, all kinds of other, uh, other workers that rely on selling quantities of hardware. Mm -hmm. So I think it's an interesting thing anyway. If you guys have an opinion on that out there in podcast land, let us know. Come on, we're soliciting. We're giving you many opportunities to talk. Give us something. Throw us a bone, man. Oh, be careful! Don't don't rile them up too much. Well, <laughs> we already have a, a voicemail and an email this week. True, but you're going to get us replaced by robots <laughs> <laughs> at this rate. True, but sometimes we're replaced by a bird. Same this is thing, true. really. I mean, it just screeches a bunch. Yeah, I know. It's an automatic biting machine. <laughs> It's really cute, too. Yeah. You can't discipline it without it giving you the doe eyes. Yep, we love our birdie. Uh, next. Aha. Yay, I'm taking vacation the last week of June and the first week of July. And at long last, I have this knack of taking vacations a week before either the summer or winter games done quick event occurs. But it just so happens that this year, summer games done quick is going to occur from July 3rd to 10th. So finally, I'll be on vacation during Summer Games Done Quick. For those of you that aren't familiar with the event, I think it's just known as Games Done Quick. Um, it's uh, like a it's it's like a convention streaming event where people who are amazing at specific games do these incredibly talented speed runs of games, and they're so awesome to watch because they just play the same game day in day out for months and months and months until they're super proficient at it, and often they're like the world record beating players. These things are tracked very carefully. So um, I'll put a, a link to this in the show notes, but it's super entertaining to watch. I believe the last event, which was the Winter Games Done Quick uh, around uh, around uh, the New Year, they had more PC games than ever before. I know they had Half-Life 2, they had... I don't even remember all the games they had. Some of the PC games they picked were kind of boring to me, but at least they were on there, so it's cool to see. But regardless of platform, they're super fun to watch. And of course, do you remember our highlight watching Games Done Quick in the winter? Yes. What? Oh, um, huh? Sorry, can you repeat the question? I, <laughs> I heard you, but then my mind just went blank. Oh, um, do you remember the best thing that we saw on Games Done Quick last uh, time we watched it? Oh, is it the two people sharing a controller? 
Oh, that was cool. We did see two people sharing one controller to speedrun something. Oh, yeah, Metroid or something. Something like that. But there was also the Mexican runner. Oh, yes. I was going to say that, but I was like, was he playing in that? Because he's really awesome. He is really awesome. And he played um, the Lion King. Oh, yeah. And in the middle, he started singing, you just can't wait to be king in Spanish. Oh, I thought he was singing Hakuna Matata. Oh, it's Hakuna Matata. Yes, Hakuna Matata in Spanish. And then everybody sang back to him before the chorus. That was great. And I'm not just being a, a vague racist asshole, by the way. The Mexican runner is the guy's name. He's a really yes. nice guy. He's an incredibly talented gamer and speedrunner. Thank you, Joey. <laughs> I think we have to take her out. I told you you shouldn't leave her locked up. Well, she was good for six minutes. <laughs> Sorry, guys. So he's a very talented speedrunner, and he's doing this project where he's trying to systematically... Play every NES game, I think, or was Ever released, yeah. He's up to, like, 400 and something games completed. So he has to, like, complete the game. So if it's, like, a sports game or something, he has to complete a season to do the championship or, or something for that, for example. Wow. He has criteria for finishing all the games, so it's not an insignificant task. So he's been doing it for more than a year, and it's he's about really awesome. 60% through or so. It's amazing. Come here, Flappy. Wow. I'm just looking out our window now, because and this, we normally keep our drapes down, but we recently put in our air conditioners, and I can see this apartment that's been put up across the uh, road from us. Like, oh, less than a week ago... There was like no wall on the north side, on the uh, south side facing us, and now there's this amazing brick wall, and I can see lights inside. I'm amazed at how fast this construction is happening. <laughs> Just sorry, I know. Sorry for the uh, break of topic, but That's okay. it's so rare that I get to see out my window because we have these uh, paper shit ridden drapes that I hung up haphazardly with Brian's help. Oh my gosh, our dra we have the cheapest possible drapes. They're made out of paper. They're like this mostly opaque, <laughs> crappy drapes. Shut up, bird. We let you out. Be good. Don't suck your, your mother's lip. Joey likes sucking on lips. It's weird. Yeah. What a sucker. All right, what's next? Um, oh, I will mention very briefly the last thing that I have on the list here, that Microsoft just announced that they are going to stop making consumer smartphones and they're going to focus on business <laughs> smartphones. So no more Windows Phone for consumers, which very few people will care about. I think they have like 0.7 of the global smartphone market, 0.7%. Yeah. That's unfortunate, but it, they are, but they do make a good business product, so it makes sense. I mean, they already have Office 360, yeah, they, they have all this... Uh, this corporate stuff. It's true. So I wouldn't write them off just yet because, yeah, as you say, they make great enterprise software. Their operating system is terrific for yeah, Windows so, Phone. I mean, it would make sense that then they, they say, oh, here we go, and now integrate this in, which makes it a great corporate package. Yeah. So, it, of course, it already integrates with Office and with a bunch of their other technologies, Skype and stuff like that. Um, so uh, I guess their biggest issue was just wooing developers to make apps. So, on the enterprise side, if they dedicate their, their device to enterprise, maybe it will do it for them. It just depends on whether enterprises want to buy devices for their employees, I guess, as opposed to the uh, BYOD, bring your own device philosophy, which so many cost-saving, cost-cutting uh, companies opt for. All right. So, that being said, let's uh, let's read our letter from Father Beast, shall we? Yes, we shall. It's a behemoth. Do you want to tackle this, or shall I? Uh, sure, I will. Okay, go for it. Hi, Squares. Father Beast here. Time again to catch up on feedback. I meant to send in, but didn't until now. 
My experience with raves is, abys is abysmally small. My only experience is with the book Dragon Tears by Dean Koontz. In this book, the hero goes up against the bad guy with some sort of time and space powers, of course. At one point, he runs through the city of the uh, new of Newport Beach and is stopped and ends up stop biting my ear at a rave. It's the kind of rave that all your parents were afraid of. It was at a warehouse in the industrial district, so the cops would not know it was happening. And there are drugs everywhere, and it was populated by rich high school students with money and knives to blow. <laughs> the bad guy maimed several party goers while time is stopped, then restarts time with the hero in the middle of everything as all the torn limbs fall to the floor. Sweet. I'm not much into mod music, or however it goes, but hearing you guys talk about it reminds me of something. My brother got interested in the capabilities of the famous Sid chip, thank you, on the Commodore 64. As you may recall, it was capable of three simultaneous voices, which was pretty cool for the time, but he started making stereo music with it. To do this, he got a cartridge with an additional Sid chip and an audio jack on it. As I recall, the chip on the computer would provide the audio for the left speaker, while the chip on the cartridge would provide the audio for the right speaker. Huh. He then fed the audio lines into a stereo and recorded them to cassette. I know he made some of his own, but somewhere he obtained a huge file, a huge library of songs recorded in Stereo Sid. I don't know if he got them from BBSs or somehow found a local community into this sort of thing or what. But I do recall that when he got his huge 5 megabyte drive for his Commodore 64, he had almost 2 megabytes of music on it that he would have his computer on it, he would have his computer play while he was doing other things. Wow. He also made a greatest hits cassette for me and my wife and other friends. Wow. I'm I am surprised that you started political discussion in the show, but okay, I'll chime in. Yay. An employer absolutely and totally should not be obligated to avoid automation in order to save jobs. That is business suicide and bad for the employees, I too. I work in warehouses and business of production rather than service, but I think the same principles apply. Okay, says my boss. Buys an automated... Saying my boss buys an automated saw capable of producing two or three times the rate of a manual saw operator. My boss recently did the very thing. On the surface, you would think that he would let one of let go one out of the two saw operators. What actually happens is that he can produce for a lower price, which means he can charge less for the end product, which encourages consumers to buy more. The end result is that the employer ends up employing the same number of employees, but his plant has twice as much output. Hmm. Additionally, those employees are more skilled and better paid. Technology is not the enemy of labor, it's the assistant. I will be willing to bet that both Brian and Maxwell Bird have jobs that didn't exist 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Good point. Well, no, I think your job may have existed in different form. Probably, but it was very different. True, you would have been uh, writing manually and use, or using some sort of bizarre typewriter, don't you? Yeah, I would have been a professional horse describer. <laughs> <laughs> You've been writing documentations for the first vehicles. Yeah, maybe. Okay. The current population has a much smaller percentage working farms which used to be the most common job, but I would imagine that farm work is employing as many or more people as they did a hundred years ago, although the farm output is much higher. The coming technology causes people to have more to move from one job to another, but ultimately creates more jobs, generally in maintenance and management of said technology. On 
the subject, I am a truck driver by trade, and I was interested when I read an article last year about how they are prototyping self-driving trucks in Europe. According to the article, the current version requires a truck driver requires a driver in the seat and has some way of checking to see if the driver is there and awake. If the truck thinks the driver is asleep, it pulls over the emergency lane and stops and puts on the flashers. Yeah. I figured that if this starts happening here, my boss is going to expect me to do my paperwork during driving time. Hmm. <laughs> That would make sense. Why not? I That's mean, interesting. I mean, if you're only there just to, uh, you know, make sure the vehicle doesn't is, is operating correctly. That's right. I think on, on this note, I think uh, human supervision of machines is probably the last phase of humans being involved in that job. Mm-hmm. Until the, until then, the, until the robots take over. But then those robots will probably need occasional maintenance. I mean... Or there will be related jobs. Mm-hmm. I like your casual games. My favorite kind of game. Yay. In my opinion, a casual game is one where you really don't care about where you are in game progression, so long as you can get in play without worrying about loading a saved game. There are the successors to stand they there are the successors to stand up to arcade games of old days. You jump in and play for as long as you feel like or have quarters or spare time, and you should get back out. Some games stimu- simulate progression by unlocking levels as you go. But that's a factor I usually ignore in my definitions. So, some of the casual games of note. I'll try and skip the ones you talked about. My wife is a big fan of pop games such as Bookworm, Chuzzles, Zuma, and Rocket Mania. Oh, oh, I love Rocket Mania. Those are also good. It just depends on what mood she's in. As for me, I'm a big fan of Plants vs. Zombies, another fantastic game, mm-hmm. which I'm surprised you didn't mention. I, I thought we did. I think we managed to skip over that. Whoops. I also... And, you know... And, uh... Oh, we did, because we talked about the World of Warcraft thing. Oh, yeah, but we didn't talk about it as a um, game a casual itself. game? Yeah. Whoopsie. Well, thank you for filling us in on that one. Mm-hmm. Although I can't say I'm a fan of Plants vs. Zombies 2. That one didn't do it for me. No, me neither. Um, Bookworm 2 was just as good as the first Bookworm. In Bookworm Adventures? Yeah. That was like... Hall of Knowledge. No. Hall of Fame. Hall of Knowledge. Oh, you sound just like a worm. Arena. Arena, arena. Don't need me. <laughs> bookworm Adventures is like an RPG version of the Bookworm formula. It's so good. It's really and cute. It's adorable. Mm-hmm. I was so disappointed when it didn't work on Windows 8, but it works on Windows 10 for me. Mm-hmm. So mm, funny. Uh, I also so continuing Father Beast's letter. Sorry to have gone off topic. I also like some older games. I still classify as casual games. Lemmings. I don't care if it's the original or... Oh, no. More lemmings! It's a great puzzle game where mistakes cause these little guys to get killed in all sorts of ways. Ah. And he gives us a YouTube link for that. Oh, yes. And lemmings, I am well familiar with lemmings. I would not call that a casual game. It sure looks casual in its presentation, but that is a hardcore, um, like, time, time management strategy game. That is a difficult game. That's a game I'd love to see on, game done, on games done quick. Uh, yeah. That would be a good one. To see that one. might be a good one. I don't know if it would be, it would still take a long time, and it's just a matter of kind of understanding what to do on each level. It doesn't really take, once you know what to do, it doesn't take a lot of skill to just execute it. Might be okay. True, Maybe but Maybe people uh, have done that. We'll look for a speed run. Mm-hmm. I'll put that in the show notes. If we can find a lemming speed run, I'll stick it in there. I mean, there's, I mean, if you know how to play Mario, you can get through without any hassle, but that's, but that's... Well, that still takes Twitch skills and everything. Lemmings is... 
Well, it's a real-time it's real-time puzzle strategy, I guess. Okay. Uh, Sky Roads. This cute little game where you race and avoid obstacles. Available on the original... In the original... And... And Sky Roads Christmas. In the original... Oh, in original and Sky Roads Christmas. Sky Roads is a fun game. That's a casual game. That is very much like a coin-op arcade kind of a style game. Jumpman. It looks kind of like Donkey Kong, but there are bullets flying around instead of barrels and ladders and other stuff. And it's just a lot of fun. I played this to distraction. Thank you for space. Get off the keyboard. J, comma. Ugh. Let's see. Sorry, bird jumped on my keyboard. Now I gotta, now I gotta go back up. Bad tootie. <laughs> I played this distraction on the Commodore 64, and well, I could play it on an emulator now. I found the remake project almost as good. Almost as in the special perils on some of the levels just aren't working yet. It's called Jumpman Under Construction, and I often play it when I have a few minutes and I hang trying to jump. <laughs> and he gives us uh, two links to that. That is a good game. No, bad bird. Bad tootie. Okay, I got a bird. It's out of the way. Well, that's all I can think of for right now. Casual games aren't much my thing, but I do play them. Have fun, Father Beast. Thank you very much, Father Beast. Pleasure to hear from you. So glad that he was able to address a couple of different of our podcasts. And yeah. That he had some stuff to put in on the uh, casual stuff. I can't believe I forgot about Rocket Mania. I played that ad nauseum. Which one is Rocket Mania? Oh, that's like, it's done in, it's done in like an oriental style. Oh, do... with the fireworks and the mm-hmm. dragons or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a good one. I haven't. I don't remember. I, I didn't remember that. I forgot about that one completely. But that mm-hmm. was a fun one. It was great presentation. Yep. Like we said last week, PopCap. They're like the epitome. They're like the high, the high watermark of casual games. Mm-hmm. So. And Chuzzle, the furriest puzzle game possible. And if you click. One of the chuzzles really quickly, you can make it sneeze. Oh, and they it, like, giggle and stuff. And it and it, it, it like explodes for everywhere. And it looks so bewildered oh, when it's bald. That's right. All their chuzzle fuzz comes <laughs> off. They sneeze it off. That's so cute. <laughs> that was a good one. Uh, cool. Thanks, Father Beast. All right. Uh, let's talk about what we played this week. Okay, why don't you start? Since you played a lot of. Uh, oh my gosh, I went bonkers this week. So, um, last weekend, it was a long weekend for us, and I went super crazy playing a whole bunch of uh, CD-ROM games from, like, the Windows 95, 98 era. Uh. Some of them were games that I own in physical versions, and some of them... Oh, I didn't put this in the show notes. I will. Um, Some of them I got from the Internet Archive. Let me just make a note of that. Internet Archive CD-ROMs. Um... So some of the I wanted to just mention by name at the very least some of the names of the games that I that we played and uh, we'll comment on them a little bit I guess. Okay. So one of them I didn't play very much of because it was ridiculous is Pist P Y S T. Oh yeah, Piss. Pist. Piss. No, not to be confused with Piss, which is uh, I, the actual name of a game by Ben Chandler. Hi Ben. <laughs> <laughs> um, Pist is a uh, satirical. Which you are, which you are being pissed. Will you shut your bird beak, woman? <laughs> It's uh, it's a parody of the game Mist, and it's starring John Goodman and some very hammy supporting actors. Uh, it's really silly. It's really stupid. It's made by what are they called? Parody Interactive or something? P A R R O T Y. It's a it's a it's a pun. Get it? Parody. So um, it's really corny humor. It's like very much kind of celebrating the medium of CD-ROM, just like putting in little animations and stuff here and there, kind of like a. 
of a humongous putt putt kind of a game. Uh, it's stupid. It's it's just a gimmick. It's uh, I don't know if it's really worth your time or not, but it's cute. It's something, and it's not badly made. I suppose the content isn't all that amusing, but the the way it's put together is really not badly done. We played a weird CD-ROM version of Mario is Missing. It just did not make sense to me. I played it. It sucks. Yeah, I played it on Nintendo. It, that's the only time I liked it. I played it when I was a kid. Yeah, although we loaded it up in an emulator, and it was kind of foreign to you, it seemed. It was kind of alien to you. Yeah, it didn't seem right somehow. I must have played the Super NES one or something. Oh, maybe that's it. Well, it sure didn't... There was nothing right about it on CD-ROM, that's for sure. It was horrible. It's weird to see a, a licensed product like that. Um, no chewing that. I played a bad music trivia game show game called Radioactive. Once again, presentation was pretty nice. It's kind of a name that song or name name that music personality based on trivia clues. And um, when you answer a question, you have to you have a few chances to click the correct name from a list of like twelve or fifteen names. Yeah. So it was all too hard for me. I didn't really know know it. It was about older music than I really care about. A lot of fifties and sixties stuff. Um, one really good CD-ROM product I played was Steven Spielberg's Director's Chair. That's a three-CD game starring Steven Spielberg, uh, several Hollywood actors. It had like Jennifer Aniston, it had Penn and Teller, a bunch of other people, and it had a whole bunch of noteworthy editors and uh, soundstage engineers and other um, like production professionals from the movie industry. And it's a a game, it's like a simulation game, I guess, where you have to write a script and shoot the scenes and edit them and work on the sound. And do a pitch, because it sounded like you were trying to work on a pitch. I didn't get far enough to do a pitch. I don't know if that's if that was part of the game or not. To be truth be told, when the editing thing came around, uh, which involves having all your scenes and having to snip little bits of it and stuff, I started finding that pretty tedious, so I haven't resumed from there. But it's such a well-made game. It's a terrific thing. So get it for free on the Internet Archive. Steven Spielberg's Director's Chair. Very impressive product. Another impressive thing that I tried was called Hate Ashbury in the 60s, which was kind of a marginally interactive documentary sort of a thing. Um, and it had a series of very articulate and interesting interviews from various people um, from, like, the psychedelic 60s uh, time frame. Just about that whole social movement of the hippies and stuff like that. Really enjoyed that, actually. Very in intelligent and genuinely interesting. And a good presentation as well, with uh, photographs and drawings and animations and stuff like that. It was mostly just like a slideshow of stills, but well done. I tried an, uh, a CD-ROM magazine called Interactive Entertainment, which um, it, w it was basically a little bit more conversational, but it was basically just like a PC gaming magazine, or it was like a, a PC and console video gaming magazine, but instead of text, it was all narrated. And uh, they had video clips. No, they didn't have video clips, I don't think, but they did have images, which were like 256 color and blown up, so it looked really uh, like JPEG artifacty and kind of lousy. But the writing and the voices and stuff were pretty well done. It just takes a long time to get through an article because you're waiting to hear them ham it up verbally. We tried Star Trek oh, Trivia. Oh, so bad. Star Trek Trivia was so bad. It was a really shitty you-don't-know-Jack knockoff. Um, it is not funny in any way, although it constantly tries to be. 
the trivia we were okay with. You can choose. Was this the one where you could choose next generation or original series or both? Uh, yeah. And we did well enough on the trivia, but in one game we got through I don't know eight or nine questions or so, and it repeated two of the questions. Because we got a time warp, which allowed, which allowed, which allowed it to happen. No, I think the time warp was just a double jeopardy thing. No. There should be no excuse for asking the same question twice in the same round of the same game. No, it reset the board back two rounds. That's and then I took that same question again. I don't think you're right about that. Yes, I think I it was am. just a double jeopardy thing. I don't know. Either, either way, we, it kept asking us questions that we had already answered, which is stupid. So we couldn't even be arsed to finish one round of it. It was terrible. Um, I played around a little bit with Microsoft Bob, which is... Did you see me playing with that, or are you aware of what Microsoft Bob is? I don't think I did. I believe it was a product that was headed up by Melinda Gates, who is Bill's wife, and it was intended to be like a user-friendly user interface for Windows either 95 or 3.1, I forget which, um, where instead of a program manager or a desktop with icons, it looked like it was pictures of a home, and if you wanted to get to a calendar, then you would click like a little date book on your desk, or if you wanted to know the weather, you would click on a window in your house. So it was just kind of a touchy-feely, more kind of humanized interface. I've, I kind of like it as an idea. It's not necessarily the best way to be productive in a hurry, but it was pretty good. But I wouldn't use it, but I see the value of it. Um, I played with a couple of uh, uh, educational things, Microsoft Dinosaurs and The Way Things Work, both of which were kind of fun multimedia encyclopedia sorts of things with nice interactive illustrations and timelines and stuff. Uh, you and I played Jeopardy!, that was pretty good, except for the AI and the uh, stupid player that kept, AI player that kept buzzing in. Like, yeah, we made the mistake of making a two-player game instead of a three-player game and abandoning the third player, because if you play a two-player game, there's an AI player, and it kept buzzing in really fast for questions and answering questions that we knew the answers to, so we are just sitting there listening to that, which was really frustrating, so we didn't even get... Oh, we did get through a game, didn't we? Yeah. What happened? We were playing one game, and you were kicking my ass... But then we got fed up with the AI player, so then we think we started another game, and then I won that one because it was answered. It was questions that I no, I won that one because your buzzer kept losing the mind for some reason, even though we were both playing on the same keyboard. Yeah, I don't know what was up with that. Yeah, my buzzer kept not working, and I got frustrated. Hmm. And finally, the last CD-ROM game to talk about is one that you and I play all the time because oh, we love it, which is the Game of Life. Welcome to the Game of Life. <laughs> <laughs> Game of Life. It's a really, really good one. I think it was by Hasbro Interactive or something like that. It's circa, I don't know, like 2002, maybe? 2003? Yeah. Such a well-done game. It's, like, really genuinely funny. It's got kind of early 3D pre-rendered cutscenes with lots of video. Really corny jokes and stuff like that. It's extremely endearing. Um, the animations are just adorable and, like, cute little puns and stuff like that. It's so well done. And it has two variations on how to play the board game. Classic is, and enhanced. Yeah, and enhanced. Uh, classic is just like the board game with the scoring and the mechanics. And enhanced, instead of... It has a few little extra rules, but also instead of collecting life tiles, as you do when you land on a certain square, like uh, if you... Uh, what are some examples of getting a life tile? Like having a, a college graduation or like uh, having a baby or something. So instead of getting a life no. tile... Get married. <laughs> you um, collect the life tile. Right. So instead of the life tile, it's like a, you spin the wheel to choose a mini game, and you play the mini game, and you either win or lose money. So it just makes it a little more interactive. So a very well conceived game, and a nice kind of a 
an iteration to make a, a, a board game into a multimedia interactive computer game. Um, so some other games I played this week. I played a bunch of Tyrion. Love that game. Great space shooter. I played... Um, and I played two little indie games. One of them is called A Solitary Walk Down Windsor Street by Adam Hartling. Um, that's... I love this game. This game was like five minutes long, maybe. And it's like literally a walking simulator. It's like a third-person adventure game, uh, kind of a, a, a an interface a presentation where you just kind of walk down a street. I don't want to give too much of it away because it's only five minutes long. But it was really kind of serene and very unique. I loved it. So I'll put that in the show notes. And also I played uh, Stair Quest uh, by... Oh, that's terrible that I can't remember the guy's name now. Just just something. Shit. And it's also contributed to by... Uh, it was written by uh, Trollus Plymert and Gareth Millward, and the soundtrack was by... Uh, who did the soundtrack? Uh, Fred... Uh, Fred, what's his name? <laughs> Frederick Olson. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Um, Stairquest. And it's kind of a parody of old adventure games and kind of navigating uh, those... 2D, 3D environments. Very funny. Uh, and lots of jokes. And it has a, uh, a real-time text parser where you start typing and it doesn't pause the scene. So it's kind of that old-school presentation. Really amusing. Sorry. Your turn, babe. I went on for too long there. No, you did. I got a part to contribute. Meh. Um, I played some uh, Cod Blops uh, 3. Cod Blops? What's Cod Blops? Call of Duty Black Ops 3. Mm-hmm. Uh... It's pretty good, except um, I have no idea what half my buttons are. So I got through a mission, and I'm like, my mission's still not over? I had, it was uh, day one of the mission. It's an, it's a different structure than the other Call of Duties, but it's okay. I like it so far. I'm so, I'm so, I play it occasionally. You got it when it was brand new, and you didn't finish it. And now you're kind of back into it half-heartedly. Mm-hmm. So what's different about this one versus other ones that you're kind of not rushing to get through the whole thing? Um, there's a lot more customization that wasn't there. Like, your loadouts, you can customize. You can load out, you can uh, customize your cores, like, the stuff that mod, mods your character. Um, just unusual stuff that I wasn't expecting. And, of course, the story makes absolutely no sense. Because, um, you Because in the first mission, you eventually get killed with your limbs torn off by these terrorism robots or something. I don't know. I didn't quite follow it. <laughs> so, I thought that was uh, Advanced Warfare. Where does that happen there, too? Um, yeah, this one you get killed. Advanced Warfare, you just lose your arm. Oh. And this one you lose your ass? Yeah. <laughs> so you get a prosthetic ass? Yeah, prosthetic almost everything. With you, cyber powers? Yeah, you get, you're, like a, you're like a cyberpunk thing. Yay, butt of the future. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Played some casual games that I don't remember the names of. Yeah, oh. played some Game of Life and some of the stuff that Brian already mentioned. Mm-hmm. And I've been playing some Sims 4. <laughs> yeah, you've been playing a bunch of Sims 4 this week. That's a really good game. So you've been getting a little bit more into modding the game, or to installing mods, I should say. Do you yeah. want to talk about a few of the mods you've tried? Okay, some of the mods, because I, I was like, I was getting annoyed that some of the uh, people that my Sims knew would stop being knowing it's like I understand you know going degrading friendships and everything if you to talk to someone for a period of time going back to acquaintances but forgetting somebody entirely that you knew like two days ago is kind of stupid 
There's a, so Max has put Cohen into Sims 4, and so I've been getting mods that stop this uh, relationship and Sim culling, just because it was really obnoxious. And Sorry, I have, what's Sim culling? Um, it's when the, the game prunes out the Sims that you haven't spoken to or NPCs that you don't see ever. Oh, so it just makes them disappear? Yeah. Okay. Because it can only handle so many in a neighborhood? Mm-hmm. But I'm like, I got a decently powered computer. Fuck uh, Max's limits. Yeah, Sims 4 was quite limited compared to other ones, at least in the way that it was programmed. The neighborhoods are much smaller, Yeah. for example. I mean, even in Sims 2, you were in your own house, but you could have, like, 50 friends, and the Sims, and it, would, and it wouldn't forget these people that you knew. Yeah, right. You could know 100 people, and it wouldn't make you forget anyone. Oh, man, you're making me nostalgic for Sims 2 now. I'm going to go install Sims 2 while, you're, while you talk about <laughs> mods. Okay, let's see. What, what's another mod I used? Um, I got mods that let me uh, increase the number of people I can have in my house because, once again, Max has decided on the lovely arbitrary number of eight. As if eight is the maximum number of people you have. Eight is enough. Well, some cultures, you know, eight's what you got when uh, it's quiet at home. Other cultures, one person, uh, two people in a house is uh, plenty. So I'm like... Eight is uh, not enough for my polygamous fa- my uh, wannabe polygamous family. <laughs> mm-hmm. In fact, I got a mod that allowed me to have polygamy called MC Command Center. And I'm like, I enabled polygamy. Of course, this enemy sim immediately proposes to the, the woman of his dreams mm-hmm. after already marrying the other woman of his dreams because he's a uh, polygamist. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the sim has 13 children, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Only one of which lived with him at the time. Ugh, she's like pulling feathers off her ass. She's molting, so I have all these adorable puffy little... I have a, two puffy feathers on me. One of them is yellow and one of them is red. What a sweet little puffer. Okay, so then I was I was about to marry this sim to his second wife, and he dies at work. This is it the second sim I had that died doing the science job? It's oh. just in the um, go-to-work expansion. You can actually follow your sim to work for three different careers. Science... Um, detective and uh, what the fuck is the third one? Doctor. Mm-hmm. So you can go to work with them, and apparently, and so what happened was this is the second time I got to rank nine, almost ranked, on, which is on, which is one down from maxing out, and he got electrocuted on the job in the same stupid spot. Both Sims were working on this experimental machine, were experimenting on the same machine. They both died the same way. And they're both in the same family tree. Oh, that sucks. Maybe Three generations apart. Is there something you're supposed to do to make yourself, like, hardy against electrocution? Uh, no, you can't. Really? It's just that risky? Uh, yeah. He wasn't even repairing anything. He was experimenting. Okay, shit. I mean, then again, one of his children set fire to the experimental children's lab in the house. <laughs> experimental children's lab? Is the lab experimental or are the children? <laughs> the lab's experimental. The oh. child set fire to the play to the play thing. Mom runs in and heroically puts the fire on the children. Put the fire out and the children run out screaming. Okay. My mom was a hero, and now she's a single mother taking care of five children. The four of which are hers, one of which is her stepchi- uh, stepchild. And, uh, yeah, the husband died before she, before she knew she was pregnant mm-hmm. with two more children. So she basically had, she was a single mom with three children, then became a single mom with five children. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and that was because I put in, which prompted me to um, go look for other mods, because um, I'm like, this is not enough. My house is too small. I only have one bathroom and three beds for uh, 
<laughs> oh, are you doing your whole social experiment thing where you have a whole bunch of people and they all have to share one <laughs> highly desired commodity, like one, <laughs> too few beds or too few bathrooms? No, I, I got everyone needs the right number of beds, and I got a mod for the beds, so at least the default level, so that way the all the beds, despite their appearance and cost, have the same energy regeneration, but may not all be comfortable or uh, have uh, stress reduction. Okay. Another good mod. In fact, there are some, there's a couple of others. One's for um, bathroom, one's for toilets, one's for uh, showers. No, one, no, there's one for beds, one for uh, bathroom fixtures, and I think there might be one for, for uh, uh, kitchen and fridge appliances. Okay. Basically, the idea being that, you know, the food is, the uh, you should always be full from it, but the quality may vary. Right, because some beds m- let you sleep more quickly. And some uh, refrigerators have food in it that keeps you full for longer. Mm-hmm. So sometimes in The Sims, when you want to, uh, sometimes in The Sims, you know, you buy the best stuff that you can afford. But then when you can finally afford the best of everything, there's very few choices. Sometimes you want your fridge to look like another fridge, but wish that it kept you full lo- quicker or whatever, longer. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, okay. Sorry, I'm trying yes. to install Sims 2 here on Origin, and yeah. it's fucking me off here. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Ten gigs! Yeah, for every expansion. Well, son of a bitch! I'll have to free up some space on my solid-state drive then. Stupid Origin doesn't let you install games on multiple drives like Steam does. And why do I have so much friggin' space consumed on my C drive? You should probably put something like Grand Theft Auto on your C drive. Uh, no, I put that... I don't know. Let me use Spacemonger and see what's taking up so much space on my C drive. We've talked about this program before. It's a great program, and we've linked it in the previous podcast. But mm-hmm. yeah, this is what Brian's using right now to uh, get a visual assessment of what's taking up space in his uh, on his uh, solid state drive. Clear disk space. There we go. Disk cleanup. What do we got on here? System files. What the hell is taking up so much space here? Doom. Ah, I installed the new Doom game on there, and it's gigantable. Like your ass. Yeah, right, dickus. <laughs> I didn't really... My goodness, that's a big game. I... Oh, it's 55 gigabytes. That'll do her. That'll learn you. <laughs> That'll learn me. Any Anything else I can clear off of here? Not really. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I gotta take Doom off. I tried loading up Doom again a couple of times this week, and I kind of wasn't into it. If you if uh, there's all kinds of hidden stuff like you can replay an individual level and try to find all the hidden stuff, and I started doing that, but I didn't really care that much. So maybe I'll just get rid of Doom and install The Sims 2 and play it for seven minutes and delete it and regret it. Or you could just move Diablo, which doesn't uh, to one of your other drives. Oh yeah, well I think we played Diablo enough though that I want it to be on a fast drive. True, but you can move it around freely because of how yeah. it's installed. And it's only 17 gigs only. True, but it'll give you the exact space that you need. Yeah. Uh, I'll think about it. Oh, what the hell. I'm going to get rid of Doom. So, um, actually, whatever. I'll do it after the show. Okay. <laughs> I'm getting distracted, and <laughs> we're getting down to the wire here. So, uh, let's go ahead. I'm going to pause the podcast, and we can put on a nice, high-quality, embedded version of Chris Olson's voicemail. Hello, Chris. And um, thanks for your contribution. Yay. Yeah, thank you. So uh, we save uh, Chris's voicemail for here because I believe, haven't listened to it yet, but I believe it has to do with our topic, which is e-learning. Mm, we said it at the same time. Jinx. Uh, all right. So take it away, Mr. Olson. 
Greetings, Squares and SquareWave FM hosts, Bianca Bryan and uh, perhaps others. Great to talk to you again. Chris Olson here. Love to throw my two cents in on your topic this week. Really uh, happy to see it come across the subject of e-learning. Before I get started, first thing that came to mind was actually something that your former co-host Chris talked about a couple years back. I think he said that he was designing an MOOC course for... um, one of the universities that actually talked about the history of game development, game design, something like that. And he actually had uh, several titles selected and was uh, kind of accruing material, screenshots, uh, development stories, etc. I know the one that he mentioned that, of course, is memorable to me is uh, Flight Unlimited, which he spoke uh, quite a bit about uh, in his uh, uh, kind of detailed uh, blog posts and whatnot from years ago. But uh, what a great subject for a course, Chris, if that's out there. I hope uh, maybe we can see that someday. Definitely would uh, love to sign up for that and take that somehow or audit it or something like that. Anyway, as far as uh, my experience goes, uh, I'll try to keep this brief. But um, had a very positive experience with e-learning. And it actually comes via iTunes University with um, offerings by Stanford and the course is CS193P, and I believe the first iteration was called something like just programming for the iPhone. And uh, this is uh, something that I depended on quite heavily for my education in iOS and the you know various devices. Um, I believe Apple and Stanford kind of hammered out a partnership that uh, was going to be kind of one of the flagship offerings of iTunes U in the early days. Uh, the App Store, I want to say, debuted sometime in, uh, iPhone debuted in 07, App Store in 08, and there was this big void of uh, people that really wanted to develop for the iOS platform, but were uh, kind of miffed at the, you know, kind of a big barrier to entry. Objective-C was the underlying language back then. I know it's since really changed over to Swift, which is a language that Apple basically designed themselves and is uh, a lot more user-friendly from what people say. But uh, in the early days, certainly the foundation of the, you know, iOS environment is uh, Objective-C. And uh, that combined with the kind of development tools, Xcode and Interface Builder back then, it uh, it was some, not something you could just sit down and, and hammer your way through. So I think in a way to kind of evangelize for the platform a little bit, certainly there was a large demand. A lot of people kind of saw the opportunity, especially early on, wanted to sit down and develop apps. But um, with the kind of different syntactical stuff that Objective-C had and just the way that things were structured, uh, there wasn't a real fantastic amount of information or kind of soup to nuts, here's how you do it. So, um, you know, I'm sure, you know, Stanford has probably been on the cutting edge of, uh, you know, leading the charge and developing courses for different platforms. But uh, Apple actually sent down uh, a couple of engineers that worked on the kind of uh, original iOS or iPhone project to teach the course as kind of an adjunct or ad hoc basis. And uh, the name that I remember is Evan Dahl, who worked on one aspect of the iOS framework. I I can't remember exactly what it was, but he would then leave Apple, go to spin off uh, his own company to create the iPad application called Flipboard, which uh, in its first couple of years was just a a runaway success. It was one of the, uh, I don't know if it was the first, but it was certainly one of the first uh, large apps to aggregate uh, news and, you know, magazine covers and everything else in kind of the cover flow format and present that as kind of a way to uh, really really utilize the uh, kind of the iPad design paradigm. In any case, um, 
the uh, e-learning offered by Stanford was it's just a really really high quality great uh, three camera setup and you get uh, you know the uh, feed from the projector if there's demo code being typed in really great professors you know they, they went through a couple of different professors in the first couple of years I believe the last uh, four or five offerings are all taught by the same guy on the Stanford faculty, a, a guy named uh, Paul Haggerty, who's just a really, really great teacher and uh, has taught millions of millions of people like myself the ins and outs of uh, you know developing for iOS. Uh, there's actually a community-based uh, function now. It was actually one of the final projects of the uh, students at the end of the class uh, called Piazza which uh, is basically, uh, and I believe Stanford uses it for a lot of their other courses as well, so if you're auditing or if you're actually there present taking the class, it's a way that uh, messages and questions can be kind of uh, sent back and forth, uh, course materials, et cetera, et cetera. So really, it's a, it's a very complete experience. And I mean, short of actually, you know, getting into Stanford, plunking down the, you know, large uh, tuition check, I, I can't think of anything better. It uh, really helped me quite a bit. And uh, like I said, was the go-to source for kind of the Bible for iOS development and, and how to do things right and the uh, you know, best practices and you know, MVC model view controller and all that. So uh, that's uh, that's basically my my story on e-learning. Uh, I'll be watching the latest version to uh, try to get up to speed on the ins and outs of Swift and uh, maybe finally cranking out another app uh, one of these days. So that's all I have. Thanks uh, so much. Great to uh, talk to you guys again and uh, really look forward to the show. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you very much for the voicemail, Chris. I'm hey, really, I'm awesome, really, awesome voicemail. That yeah. was a good one. I'm really glad that uh, he uh, touched upon uh, learning technological and computer programming stuff and mobile programming stuff because that's something that we don't really talk about. That was something we're not programmers, so we don't really have any experience with that. But there's a ton of uh, computer programming specific stuff out there that we're not qualified to talk about. Nope, <laughs> And since we're not Apple people, we don't have experience with iTunes U either, which was something that I never tried, but I really was fascinated with the concept. However, I dissuaded the college I worked at, I work at from using it just because it requ it's like Apple proprietary. It requires Apple software. I said if we're going to if, if uh, we're going to uh, publish educational material, make it a standards compliant thing. Because some people consider iTunes to be ubiquitous, but it's most certainly not an open platform. It's Apple. Yeah. So, but it's, it still uh, has terrific free content that is of great value. So I'm not going to devalue it. I just think it's right for some use cases, but not for all. Mm -hmm, exactly. So let's move on to moving on to our topic. What should we, first thing should we talk about? Well, why don't we start off with the top thing on our list? Oh yeah, our uh, postgrad. Yeah, so Bianca and I both took the same postgraduate uh, program in college, which was technical communications. So um, why don't we tell people a little bit about that? Because we thought that would kind of be a good way to frame this discussion. Okay, why don't you take us in first? Okay, sure. So um, your story might be different. Me personally. Um, you know, we also, Bianca and I also have the same undergraduate uh, education, which was computer systems technology. It's basically like a computer science uh, college diploma. Um, so I got out into the workforce after graduating from college. And uh, as soon as I was done in college, I sort and like was in the real working world. It kind of occurred to me that my favorite part about 
technology was like talking about it and describing it and writing about it and doing essays about it more than necessarily working with the technology directly, even though that's a big hobby of mine. Get your tail out of my ear, you mangy flea biter. Um, I, liked, uh, I like writing about it most of all. So um, I had a couple of assignments where I got to do uh, technical writing and other kinds of communications. I also, um, before I went to college, had a temp job as a technical writer and a technical proofreader for um, Toronto Hydro, which is like our hydroelectric energy utility. That was a fun job because I got to write about um, and, and proofread about uh, zebra mussels attaching themselves to like uh, oil tankers and stuff like that and uh, procedural manuals for nuclear power plants and stuff like that. I really like the process of describing technical procedures. So that's what I ended up studying. Uh, how about you? How did you get into technical communication uh, educationally, <laughs> academically? Well, like you, I started off with uh, network admin. Uh, whatever. She, let her, she dropped her toy. Let her deal with it. Okay. Um, I kind of got in when uh, the, when the dot-com bubble exploded and they were laying off people. So I had so I wound up going back to school thinking, okay, I'm going to find something I can do. I went into something that once again was oversold and wound up being a field that was um, heavily uh, competitive. And there was a lot of people in very few job positions, which was uh, for... Uh, um, 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 pa not paralegals. Oh, uh, law, clerk. law clerks. I don't even know my own frigging undergrad. <laughs> that was a post grad. Uh, yeah, that was one post grad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when I had, so I had that, but there was no jobs, and so I'm like, okay, this is stupid. I'm gonna go back and see if I can get something that's that'll complement it, since uh, this uh, legal post grad already required decent writing skills and the ability to. Uh, compose um, legal documents. I thought that technical communication was just a natural extension of that. And I moved into the uh, into the uh, post into the uh, technical communication post grad. Mm -hmm. For similar reasons to Brian, like I wanted to, I always wanted to write. Like I've always been an aspiring writer, but you also had aspirations to be a, a teacher. Yes, but that was discouraged for the only reason that I was going, I wanted to be an English teacher, and there were so many English teachers that we didn't need another one. Yeah, there's kind of a glut of teachers, and it's not a very stable work environment to be in in this day and age with reduced reduced funding and all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm lucky to have a, a job related to education, because we don't exactly get more and more funding every year. Nope. I would have loved to have an education job, so I'm just looking right now, otherwise I... Uh, put my uh, technical my uh, education towards maintaining documentation as an online community manager mm -hmm. <laughs> aka game mod <laughs> right yeah yeah our decided owner gave us told us just use this fancy title if you're gonna put it on your resume <laughs> yeah exactly yeah so now I'm like I'm like I, so I've started telling people I'm, I've been starting to think to myself I'm not gonna tell people I'm unemployed I'll just say I'm an online community manager they don't need to know that it's a volunteer position yeah exactly and it sounds, uh, it sounds like woo special. Yeah, it does. So anyway, technical communication. It's not just uh, writing technical documentation describing how something works. There's more to it. It's telling people, you know, giving people instructions on, on how to fix like, specific problems. How to, it, uh, it's a communicating in an effective way. So for an example, you can anybody can write instructions, but how? But can you? Good technical communicators write instructions 
that are clear and are understandable and don't and use exactly the kind of terminology someone who is ignorant in that field not to say stupid but ignorant meaning that they they don't know any better don't understand they would normally not understand so for example an engineer might uh, say okay i've got this wonderful product i'll write up a description and documentation for it <laughs> And then uh, they turn around and they try and they put it, they attach this this, this uh, documentation to the project. Someone who doesn't understand it, let's say a let's say a high up manager comes along to it, analyze its uh, marketplace value, looks at it, reads the document, and goes, "What the fuck is this? I don't understand why this works. Why is it, how is this possible? This is stupid. Let's not do this." So the uh, technical communicator's job is not necessarily to be an engineer, but to understand what the engineer is trying to say and then put it in terms that the manager can understand so they can see why this is a profitable uh, vent, uh, venture. Yeah. We're basically English to English translators or whatever language you happen to be in. So, um, or Russian, te- technology Russian, to English. Yeah. Or technology to whatever language. Layman. Yeah. You're uh, from, you're from uh, Technobabble to uh, Herp Derp. <laughs> That doesn't exactly make it any clearer, but yes, yeah, sure. Or layman terms, so it doesn't really matter. It can be anything that uh, is like technically specialized. <laughs> right, techno babble the herp derp. I kind of like that actually. <laughs> so yeah, so as she says, um, technical communicator. That used to be like a job known as a technical writer, somebody who writes manuals, somebody who um, interviews subject matter experts and kind of gets a brain dump from them and follows them around and watches them perform tasks and watches them uh, do things that they expect their end users to do. Um, And it's also somebody who observes end users to uh, analyze what they're doing and to, uh, if they make common mistakes, to kind of make note of those and prepare to to mitigate those. Um, Either with, uh, you know, common, with either um, structuring the document so that the most commonly asked questions have their own section so the person can easily look that up and thinking like an end user rather than a creator. Right. So basically a technical communicator is somebody who empowers the layman to perform tasks that only someone very experienced could do. It's somebody who makes things that are difficult a little bit more accessible through documentation. (laughs) Or not just documentation though, because it used to be called the technical writer now they're called the technical communicator because they do more than write. They uh, present infographics, so it's images, layouts, which is also part of that. Like you don't, because you may not necessarily be the person who writes it, but you're probably the person who designs the layout, which makes the uh, which makes the information digestible because it's not all crammed into a big block of text. It's spread out, so it's nice in the it's nice sections of text with the images that help you understand what you're doing and seeing. Yeah, sometimes technical communicators do uh, desktop publishing and layouts, mm-hmm. um, but they'll also do like non-textual documents. They might, well, or, or they might do um, non-paper uh, documents. They might do like contextual help systems where like there's a question mark on a screen and you click that and it tells you what you can do on that screen or what one individual field or button does. Mm-hmm. Or they might also do non-textual things like they might do instructional videos or they might do narrated animations or things like that or even just a visual infographic that has uh, icons yeah so you and i in our postgraduate uh, diploma program technical communication we learned a couple of applications at least for um e-learning mm-hmm. and so uh one of those was robo help yeah 
Was that by Macromedia? Yes. Who is now owned by Adobe. Mm-hmm. Um, RoboHelp was for um, software help systems. They is that bird biting your armpit? That's no, gross. It's climbing in my shirt from the armpit hole. <laughs> what a silly birdie! Oh, this is this bird is such a freaking handful. Come here, you. Yes. All right. So RoboHelp. Um, I believe it made were they .hlp files or something? They're like files that. Uh, they're files that were commonly bundled inside of Windows 3.1 and 95 and 98 and 2000, and then they became another format. But they were like for the uh, the bundled online help manuals that were inside of like installable software. And oh, they were so searchable and had an index. This is what you got when you press F1. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. They're like F1 help files. So that's what those are for documenting, and they had a markup language similar to HTML. I forget what it was called. It might have been called RML, actually, RoboHelp Markup Language or something like that. Mm-hmm. It was a decent application. It was uh, easy enough to use. Um, another application that we learned was Adobe Captivate. Mm-hmm. You learned that in class, didn't you? Yes. I didn't learn that in class, but I learned it afterwards. Do you want to talk about Captivate? Essentially, Captivate is a video creator that lets you uh, incorporate screenshots and videos in a seamless manner along with... Um, voiceover and captioning that allows you to sync it so and uh, do screen capture so you can uh, speak as you uh, show someone how to click something and where to move your mouse. So, for example, you might narrate a process to uh, explain to somebody how to open their start menu and uh, make a, and uh, do a search stop by my share and do a search from the uh, Windows 10 search box to look up control panel. Right. And so you would show them. You would so you would, you might have a pop up that points to where you want to move your mouse, and then you would move your mouse cursor there. Have another pop up that shows where they're going to be doing their thing, and then you do that along with vocalized instructions. So it's uh, good for both um, someone who may not be for uh, someone who might be deaf, or someone who prefers uh, like contextual help, like written out help, but still wants to be able to see the actual interactive process rather than just straight up read. Right. Yeah, so Captivate makes, it's for, it's also a computer-based learning tool, and it's, as you said, it's essentially for video files, so either video as in something you've recorded with a camera, or some video that you've captured from a screen, just walking through someone a procedure, or you can put it together with screenshots or something, you can make your own things. And have it look like, and you can actually assemble it from Microsoft PowerPoint as well. Mm -hmm. So you can, you can. Import a Microsoft presentation, and if you want to have uh, like just stuff come in, or if you just want images of uh, something to come in when you're introducing a concept, like a flowchart, mm-hmm. but then you want to have like an interactive element. It's a way to incorporate mo- multimedia elements into a single uh, file. Right. Although I found that it's importing from PowerPoint was very very bad. It's better to make it natively. That was just kind of a yeah. concession they made for people that don't know how to use Captivate properly. Yeah. Which is not a, which but, is not unexpected because it's really clunky. I find I I don't like the interface at all. True, but it is a good way to. It's at least a good stepping stone, and then you can tweak. Because sometimes you just want to have the basic uh, foundation in before you start tweaking, which is why that integ- which is why I don't mind the uh, import. Option. Yeah, that's true. It's like working from a template. Mm-hmm. Um. So one other thing you can do with Captivate, which I really like, is that you can make simulations. So similar to just doing screen capture video where you're you have a mouse cursor on screen and you're showing what to do step by step, you can 
have like a screenshot of a screen and make a little hotspot where you say, click this area to go to the next screenshot. And it kind of simulates you navigating through software, which is a little bit more interactive and tactile than just teaching someone, you know, just dictating to someone, click this, then click this, then click yeah, this. You true. have them actually do the clicking, which is great. Mm-hmm. You can, and then you can have like the video and then do like an interactive aspect if you want to be like really fancy. Yeah, you can. Or you can have like contextual annotations and stuff. Like you can say verbally, click the OK button. And if they click in the wrong place twice, then you can draw a little square around the OK button that says no click right here for, to say OK. Mm-hmm. It's, it's powerful software. It's just quite labor and time intensive. Mm-hmm. But it's quite effective, I think. It's the more, more time invested in this training initially will hopefully mean less time to train people later on. So as a technical communicator, the privilege you have is that you do a bunch of work as, a, as one person, and then you deploy it to 5,000 people, and they all learn equally well, hopefully. Mm-hmm. So instead of them having to be trained one-on-one or trusting them to read a manual, yeah, you okay. walk them through what's, what's mm-hmm. relevant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, most of the time when you get a manual, it's going to be everything you need to know, but you don't want to know, you know but, you, but you're not, not going to read it front to back. Nobody reads manuals front to back. So one thing you learn in college as a technical communicator is people are going to use your material as reference material. So never assume, never assume that you can omit information in the back of the book because you mentioned it in the front of the book. Your instructions should always be complete. Yep. Your table of contents may uh, be may have less information, but your index should be uh, should focus on all the uh, hot topics. And maybe yeah, that's a few right. Sub, and if you will, in in uh, major subtopics. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's something else you learn as a technical communicator is building indices and taxonomies and other ways of uh, like alternative ways of having people uh, find what you're there looking for. I also learned some of that in my first job out of college, where I became a search engine specialist. Is that something else where you have to develop a taxonomy, but you also learn about search engine optimization and writing content mm-hmm. so that you use a bunch of keywords that people are likely to be searching for? Mm-hmm. So you rephrase things in ways like you you write, a, you write an article, and then you learn that people are searching for something and not finding your article, and so you, re, you edit your article and replace some words with the words that people are searching for. Mm-hmm. That makes your, your documentation more yeah. accessible. Yeah. I mean, some of the stuff you learn in school, some you just learn from experience. Most, Very much so. Yeah, there's only so much you can learn in the education environment before you start to learn from the real world. Absolutely. For sure. Because seeing what the industry is doing, and most importantly, seeing what your users are doing, both before and after you publish version one of your documentation, you have to kind of keep iterating upon that to make it a little bit better, mm-hmm. if you can afford the time. So we have some other examples of e-learning. I didn't build the biggest list of this because I've had a super busy week at work, so let's just talk about what we know. True, but... Uh... <laughs> and see where it goes. Okay. <sighs> All right. Uh, the first one on the list is something that you have vast amounts of experience with. Why don't you talk about Duolingo? Yeah, I've mentioned this before, but it's essentially a free version of like Rosetta Stone and other uh, learning software. But unlike others, it uh, builds like it's a it's a it's a medium on which to learn language, and it's done by. Um, learning how to by learning a language through sentence and grammar rather than at one word at a time or uh, through verb conjugation like individual verb conjugation it puts it into context so you can see something it, yes you can see how a verb is conjugated but then it shows you um, in context how a verb and sentence structures so it can look 
So as long as you understand the basics of English and uh, the basics of grammar, you can figure you can learn how to uh, read another language. Well, yeah, lingua- English doesn't even have to be the base language, does it? I'm just saying for... Just they saying have, for, like, German to French and stuff like that, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they, they too, but I'm just saying... I should say your native language, you know, like, the basic structure of your your language with verbs, nouns, adjectives, prepositions, kind, uh, conjunctions. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, I think most languages are available to be translated from English, but okay. there are other languages. There language. are other languages, but the primary language is English to foreign language. Okay. And right now, I know that they're ha- that the two languages that, that are upcoming are Greek and Hebrew. Oh, that's great. And unfortunately, not Japanese yet. Nope, but... Um, I don't know why. Vietnamese is upcoming. I think Vietnamese mm. is actually hatched. Uh, they also have... Hatched? Much- yeah, it's in beta. Okay. Because there's three phases. Hatching, beta, and uh, release. Huh. <laughs> Speaking of release... Let me get some... Let me wipe that up. <laughs> Thanks, bird. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what does a Duolingo lesson look like? Okay. It essentially... It can look like... Um, hmm. Depending on what you're doing, it can uh, have a microphone option if your microphone is turned on. So you speak into the microphone. And as long as you're close to pronunciation, it'll uh, check you It'll say good. And let you progress to the next language, next sense example. Oh yeah, the microphone stuff was pretty crappy though, wasn't it? You can go like, bleh, 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 bleh. and it's like that was perfect French. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe it was. I don't speak French well enough to know. True. Okay. Um, or it might be oral, and it will ask you to write the sentence that you hear. So it'll test your ability to listen. Mm-hmm. And then there's other ones where you might pick the uh, word associated with the picture, or. In the case of French, they have some instances where you have to know the correct um, article that goes before the word. Oh, you mean like le la? Yeah, le la, c'est, mm-hmm. c'est la, c'est la. Stupid languages with their male and female inanimate objects. Yeah, Dutch didn't have that. Thank goodness like Japanese a, doesn't have oh, that. Oh, Japanese has none of that. Dutch has like one or two, <laughs> but it's only with uh, knowing when to use het versus uh, de. Okay. But uh, some languages, ha- they do their uh, the conjugation, everything. But mostly it's just writing a sentence down and translating it. Sometimes the sentence, sometimes it's just translating a word. Mm-hmm. So longer term then, um, there's like a tree of lessons that you can learn. Or yeah. There's like a progress. What does that look like? Um, so you have to do, so you do each lesson five times to get the basic completion. And then completing each tier of the tree will unlock the next ones. Mm-hmm. So you start off with the basics, which is usually just a couple of words and one of the early, and usually a to do or to be verb. Okay. And usually the ice and usually the speak to speak verb. So uh, let's see. French would be uh, être and that's parler would be the uh, verbs that you start with mm-hmm. and then you probably and then you start with like words such as um l'homme um uh and garçon mm-hmm. and then it, it, it will also pro- and then if you have accented characters which French is notorious for although for some reason in France the uh they're going they're going to modify the language to get rid of a few of those oh interesting yeah because I mean Having to remember certain complex and all that was just obnoxious. 
Or if you're, you know, going into Danish, then you have uh, your O with a slash through it. I don't even know what that's called, and you got your umlaut. Oh, the O with a slash through it? Don't we call that the Nepade? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's got a proper name. Probably. But yeah, this system also will uh, they'll tell you you're, you're correct, but they'll point out that you need to make sure that you have the uh, correct version of the character. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, for that reason, some languages are more forgiving. But then, you have stuff like Russian, or ones that have their own writing system, and then you have the option to either write into that language itself, or to uh, write natively. Oh, like an approximation using your native characters? Yeah. Oh, that's handy. Mm-hmm. So if you just want to learn the words in the uh, language itself without having the proper writing. That's really nice that they kind of make, they give you those options. And likewise with the microphone, the the, the stuff where you where you verbalize is optional in case you don't have a microphone. I appreciate that they don't penalize you or slow you down enforcing yep, that nitpicky stuff. They really keep it moving so that you learn the vocabulary. Mm-hmm. That's great. And then they have um, contextual help on every pa- on the page to, to remind you of what you're doing and to give you examples. And then if you mouse over words when, you're trans- when you don't know the translation, it has like a list like sometimes there's like more than one translation for a word, but you have to remember which version of it you're using. And they also had like community features, didn't they? About yes. like usage of words or exceptions or mm-hmm. why why this is an irregular verb. Mm-hmm. There's like community discussion about yep. like every and, single thing. And then French had like an, a whole a whole translation, a, an act, an interactive translation thing where you could go in and translate a document from French into English. Oh wow! Yep, I uh, were, I actually did. A few paragraphs of something. Hmm. Fortunately, it was in present tense, so I didn't have too much difficulty. <laughs> right. That stuff is tricky. Oh, yeah, French verbs are the, are the worst. But that's a good one for learning, because it really uh, forces you to know your conjugation. Right. But it also what's interesting is it lets you see how different languages really are. Because some languages just have all oh, these unbelievably intricate rules, and then some just... I just don't have anything special about them. I mean, Japanese like, has unbelievable rules with... And it, anyways, I'll move on from there. Oh, yes. Kind no, no, no. Of, I was, that's, I, I'm sorry. I was making that gesture with my hand because that's exactly what I was going to say. Oh, yes. Japanese has a past tense but and a present tense, but no future tense. Yeah, and then no it's gender... Like, tomorrow I am going. Yeah, and then I am going, which mm-hmm. is like now. Yeah, tomorrow I am going, today I am going, tomorrow or yesterday I went. Yeah. That's so much easier. Yep, and no gendered stuff either. Mm-hmm. Which is nice. Thank goodness. Mm-hmm. But then some languages like Russian have uh, exceptions when it comes to, like, the uh, articles, like the small articles. Mm-hmm. Um, some, some languages, and in, I, know, I forget how many ver- and in, uh, some languages have their... They, I don't even know how they would do Chinese with the... Uh, with the... Uh, inc- with the... Uh, with the um, internal uh, changes. Oh, right. Well, that would be more dependent on audio, I guess, which Duolingo is. Yeah. It, it really requires speakers to do it properly, doesn't it? It may not require a microphone, but it does need speakers. Yeah. Can you keep an eye on her, please? She's biting the chair. I know. I'm trying to, but she keeps going behind me. Okay. So anyway, back to Duolingo then. Yeah. Um, the only other thing I can think to ask about then is for you to talk about the gamification. Oh, yeah. There is... um. Every time you complete a lesson, you get gems um, for the first time. And and if you complete your daily score, you accumulate uh, gems from having done it for a week or whatever. And these gems can be used to buy uh, 
special things in the store, she knows she's on You used to buy uh, stuff from their store, like um, additional. If you're uh, doing French, you can get um, like extra, like colloquial stuff. For example, flirting phrases, uh, colloquial uh, no idioms, and something else. Mm-hmm. And then you can learn like more intricate stuff than just the the basics, like of verbs like past tense, past tense, future tense, present tense. The gerund, which is like uh, the oh. infinite form of oh, yeah. something. Gerund. Gerund. All right. How does this have? What does that have to do with the gerif- gamification? Um, just saying that that you can use uh, the uh, gems to unlock this extra stuff. Ah, okay. And, uh, so you earn by you earn gems by completing lessons consecutively. Yeah, by completing lessons, doing lessons, um, like completing stuff for the first time, having done, uh, getting levels. Because you get points for uh, X number of levels. Um, you get points for having, uh, say you uh, logged in 10 days in a row, you get uh, gems for that. So every 10 days you get a gem for having logged in multiple times, uh, the number of to- times the number of days. So if you logged in 30 times, you get uh, one gem times 30, so you get three gems for having logged in straight for 30 days. Mm-hmm. You get gems for that kind of thing, and you can also use these gems to reward other players if they make a really good contribution. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so you can kind of... So it's instead of just simply upvoting them, they made, it, they made a huge difference for you. Hmm. You can give them this gem to reward them. That's pretty interesting. So it's like a currency. Mm-hmm. Hmm. All right. Anything else left to be said about Duolingo then? Mm. Oh, well, it's free. Can, yeah, it's free. You can compete. You can uh, compete with your friends to see who can, who can uh, waste the most time on there. <laughs> you can also challenge yourself by uh, doing the challenge with against the clock. So, if you know how to do your alternative characters, if let's say your primary language is English, you have to know your alternative characters. If you can do those pretty quickly, you can uh, you can accumulate. Like double points that you would normally get for doing the uh, practice lessons. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, there's quizzes which let you test your language knowledge to see how well you do. Mm-hmm. Like progress quizzes, which are really cool. And it's a good way if you... Uh, and they even have uh, information if you're uh, thinking of visiting or anything like that so you know what to expect. Hmm. It's really handy. And I know that they're currently upgrading the uh, some of these... Uh, Session, sections like different languages to a, sec- to a new version so they have more interactive features. <laughs> Next on the list is Khan Academy which is another one I've used. Yeah, I've used that a little bit too. K-H-A-N, Khan Academy. Mm-hmm. I believe it was started by an elementary school teacher or a high school teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, something Khan. And he... Um, just needed some online place to kind of reiterate or to embellish upon his lessons and his, like, online notes. And it turned into this whole thing where he just kind of kept adding more and more subjects by more and more experts, and he got a whole bunch of funding to upgrade the capabilities of the website and make it multimedia and add user accounts and stuff. But Khan Academy is basically a place where you can take all of these, like, elementary and high school-level classes, and also, like, academic, but not necessarily, uh, like, you know, intellectual, but not necessarily academic courses, like, art, I don't know, there's art history and, uh, machinery history and stuff. History, the forms yeah. of, uh, I guess those are academic. 
Except, wait for it, the Mongols. Right. Oh, is that guy on uh, Khan Academy? Yep, that's where I was watching him before. What was his name? John Green. Right, right, right. He was very funny. Um, so it's a variety of teachers teaching a variety of subjects. It's completely free. Um, and um, so do you want to talk about the format of individual classes? Because I've never finished a course on Khan Academy, but I have piddled around and started several courses. Yeah. Well, it depends on what you want to take. And you can... I did, you can, if it has videos, then you can really watch the videos in any order, but if you watch it in the order that it's intended, then um, you really get more out of it. Mm-hmm. However, you can do something like math, and it actually has interactive math where you can... Uh, oh, does it have interactive? I didn't see anything interactive in the ones I chose. Yeah, math is interactive. And so you actually do that stuff, you uh, calculate it. But it doesn't, and then you can, if you're um, like me, sometimes trying to write out your stuff on a computer using the mouse is not as effective as it should be. And so I found myself writing out my uh, calculations by hand before it, plugging it in online. Oh. Oh, you also, now that I recall, you did uh, some graphical stuff when you were learning JavaScript or something? Yeah. Where it would, like, say, here's, if you do this graphical thing in JavaScript, here's what it's going to look like. Now do it step by step, and it'll show you step by step what your changes do. Yep, they they had like some compute. They had some coding languages. Oh, they have grammar on there now. Cool. Mm-hmm. We're just looking at the subjects available. But yeah, let's say that uh, you were you suck at math, or you want to uh, refresh your uh, earlier math. It's a good place to go, and it just has all this awesome stuff that you can do and refresh, and that reteaches you stuff that you thought you forgot. And if you were any good in math as a kid, but let it go as an adult, you may find that a lot of it just returns to you, like muscle memory. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. So I tried a few things on here myself. I did. I tried a programming one. I didn't really care. I um, took one about like biological chemistry, which was really fascinating, and it started with like uh, atomic level chemistry stuff, which was very interesting. But it was starting to kind of zoom by me. But. Um, the format of the stuff was great. It was like video-based learning with lots of illustrations and stuff. So it was like a, a the professor would draw on this electronic whiteboard and uh, draw models of, of uh, molecules and stuff like that and uh, show the relationships between things and talk about uh, physics and quantum chemistry, quantum physics, and the relationships and the energies that hold uh, atomic particles together. That was really neat stuff, and it helped to see it visually represented in the way it was. Mm-hmm. It also helps, of course, to be able to rewind and to pause and stuff like that. Um, I also took some stuff about art history, which was great because they just kind of uh, show these different uh, pieces of art from different uh, time periods, and they talk about the relationships and the references between those and like how art is cyclical where certain things will come into vogue and then there will be kind of like a, a punk movement that uh, that uh, rejects that last generation of art and does this kind of a thing instead and that will become popular until the old style comes back again um, and they talked about individual artists and what their signatures were on the different kinds of art and even though they might have done different styles of art they did these sort of things consistently and that's how you knew it was theirs or that's how you knew that someone was copying them so that was great the art history one was especially neat because it had two different professors both of them were art historians and they would usually agree or they would like finish each other's sentences but sometimes they would say oh I disagree with you because I think this is more like this thing and for this and that reason and they would show uh, photographs of the things that they were talking about and sometimes they would sway each other in their opinions which was great 
Um, I see here they also have uh, test prep, like the SATs and the MCAT and GMAT and stuff like that. So that's really neat. And there's also gamification here. Yes. <laughs> I seem to remember you earn points, like, for every 10 seconds of video you watch or something. And yep, you earn points for helping people in the community. Oh, really? You earn points by logging in like, X number of days in a row. Uh, you earn points for completing lessons, for for completing uh, stuff that you... And for redoing stuff that you completed previously. Yeah, so I just did the passive stuff myself, where you just watch videos. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of neat watching it tick up like that. Yep. So Which you don't really, get the points if you skip just to the end of the video. You actually have to be watching the video. Yeah, you have video. to sit through the whole thing. I watched something about the universe and just ha and, and the scalability of stuff. That was pretty cool. What's interesting is the math stuff has the interactive and it also has um, videos that explain all the concepts. Mm-hmm. So it's an amazing website. It's absolutely incredible. And once again, it's free, but they take in... Uh, but they have uh, user support in, ter in terms of monetary uh, contributions. But mm. So it's completely optional. It, but it also has a corporate... Sp I think it might have a corporate sponsor now. I think they have several. Mm -hmm. I think they're just donations, but they, they do get funding from all kinds of places. Mm -hmm. I think Google is a big sponsor of theirs, and you can... Yeah, you can sign in with your Google account by just clicking one button. Mm -hmm. Amazing resource. Absolutely amazing. Like, surely there's tens of thousands of dollars worth of education for free on this website, which is so very cool. Mm -hmm. Another good one is, mesmer is uh, Mesmerize. Oh, what's that? This is uh, another one I use like this. It, uh, it's more of a user contribution of lessons rather than uh, the site owners mm -hmm. or site administrators. Mesmerize, yeah. It. Um, Go ahead. It, it you can uh, it's once again is a combination of videos. It can be uh, interactive input and uh, um or in the in the list in the auditory files. I'll put it. I'll put the name in the show notes. You'll have to help me find the uh, link. All right. So moving along from there. And it's once again. Or it, not. Yeah. It, yeah. So let me just finish what I was going to say. It's more of a flashcard one. But it's a lot of options and a lot, and it's user-created content, which makes it a little different than um, Duolingo. Yes, that, those are user-created, but they're not just any user. These are uh, people who work together in small groups to uh, hatch this content. And it also seems to be uh, confirmed and vetted by the community and modified as required. Yeah, and uh, it received, they receive a lot of input, and they. Uh, I know that on Duolingo, I actually said, oh, this doesn't seem right. When I was doing it on, on the English part, I said, I uh, translated it as this, but I was told I was wrong, but I know that this word is actually a correct word. Mm -hmm. And or sometimes they might... Uh, well, and what happened when you did that? I got thanked and got a couple of gems. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... Right, come next? On. Yeah, come next. All right, so the next one I have on here is called lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A. Um, I luckily get a subscription to this for free from my workplace. All the employees in my workplace get this. It's not cheap. I think it's like 20 or $30 a month. I could check on that, but I'm not going to because I'm lazy. But it's largely a website that teaches you how to use different kinds of software. So they have stuff about Windows. They have stuff about Office. They have lots of Adobe applications like Photoshop and Dreamweaver and uh, FrameMaker and Captivate and stuff like that, uh, Illustrator. Um, they also have a lot of stuff about 
music composition and sound engineering, um, which is really cool. Uh, so it is mostly it, well, it's all self-paced learning. Um, oh, it's memorized, not mesmerized. I'll put that in my thing. Sorry. Yeah, sorry about that. That was my bad. Uh, so Lynda.com, yeah. So it's self-paced learning. Its format is uh, they cover a, a topic in an X number of hours. And instead of having, like, a day's worth of lectures or so at a time that you watch, they are broken up into very small little nuggets of learning. That's a really gross way to put it, but that's what I'll call it. So nuggets. They might have one chapter, which has, like, uh, an hour and 45 minutes worth of content, but that hour and 45 minutes is broken up into 40 videos, and a lot of the videos are between, like, 30 seconds and 5 minutes long. And so you can just absorb these little these little tidbits of knowledge uh, at your own pace um, and, uh, you know, pause them and rewind them and replay them and whatever. Uh, The format visually is that it's mainly video-based learning, video and audio. Um, And so on the screen you have the video and it has different video playback controls that let you play it extra slow or extra fast or whatever. Um, It also has... An, a, an English transcription, a textual transcription of every word that's said. And what's really cool is that it has like a karaoke sort of a thing where it highlights the sentence that's currently being said. So that's really amazing for English second language users or for people with hearing impediments or whatever. It's It uh, just very clearly uh, reiterates exactly what's being said uh, textually. So it makes it really, really easy to follow. Um, or if uh, they're using, you know, jargon or lingo or something that it's not obvious or you're not sure whether you're hearing it correctly. It's really easy for you to avert your eyes from the video down to the text and exactly immediately see where you should be looking and see the spelling of whatever it is that they've been saying. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) So, um, it also has some interactive stuff where maybe they will be doing some uh, exercise and there will be some work files that you can download. There's a link to download those work files. And you use the software on your end while they demonstrate on screen uh, what it looks like to do it correctly. And you can kind of follow along step by step. A lot of it is designed in order to uh, to be followed in that way. So it's really, really good. Um, it's a fantastic alternative to going to corporate training. Some corporate training is like four, five, six hundred dollars for one day of training. Whereas this is like $30 for a month. So although it's self-paced, um, which probably means that uh, you'll be uh, it means that you'll be doing it you know, in your spare time, um, it's a hell of a lot cheaper than taking a time out of your workday to go downtown or whatever and take this class. And you have to absorb a ton of information in one or two days. So if you're ever in that position or if you have some software that you'd like to learn, maybe it's a small price to pay for that. They also have a free trial of a week or two. I think um, if you listen to uh, some of the twit.com t- uh, podcasts, This Week in Tech, uh, the Leo Laporte uh, podcast network, they have paid sponsors and they often give a discount for subscriptions or for your first month. It might be for your permanent subscription, as a matter of fact. So I would very much encourage you, if you want to learn some software, or even if you're familiar, for example, with an old version of Photoshop and you want to learn the new version, they have uh, courses that are like the delta between the old and the new version, and they're only like an hour long. Uh, Use the free trial and check it out. And if you're interested, then find a discount code from uh, twit.com. So that's lynda.com. 
I want to talk about the last two that I really want to talk about before going on a small temporary tangent is um, the uh, concept of a MOOC and um, the which is a multi what is it a massively open online courseware. Um, the first uh, company that I know to do this was called EDX. There weren't a company exactly. Um, I think it's edx.org. .org, yeah. So they're not a company. They're just like this uh, conglomerate of several uh, major universities. I know MIT was a founder. I think Harvard and Berkeley and Stanford were founders, along with a whole bunch of others. And the idea was that they are going to offer university-level courses free of charge to anyone who wants to sign up. And their pricing model is that you can do the entire course absolutely free of charge without any commitment or any payment whatsoever. However, if you would like to get uh, a certificate confirming that you completed this course, then you pay a nominal fee of like $80 or something, and they'll mail you a physical certificate, which certifies like from this prestigious uh, educational facility that you've done that. Like try getting Harvard education for $80 any other way. You're not really going to find it. So that's a really interesting concept. So they have hundreds of courses that you can take, and they are like from anywhere from like project management uh, to uh, like macroeconomics to learning languages or to doing English grammar, um, computer engineering. Uh, Bianca, you and I watched a bit of an EDX course once. It was a Harvard uh, a Harvard um, professor teaching. Uh, like the philosophy of ethics. Oh yes, I remember this. Which is really neat. Boy, do they have a beautiful. Uh, they had a beautiful like lecture hall. True, and it was like, like a thousand uh, people. There was uh, two. There, yeah, it was like who do you save? The guy about to be run over, or these uh, five people? And then he kept changing it up to like the one person you know versus these. Uh, these like these ten strangers you don't know, and all this other stuff. Like, yeah. Like where do you draw the line? And because uh, it was not, and it was like, and it was not the, and it wasn't always a simple answer. Exactly. Are there questions that don't have a correct answer? It's just a matter of opinion and ethics and that kind of stuff. So that was stimulating. And it's not just a professor pontificating in the front of the class. It also had, they had like microphones around the lecture hall so that somebody sitting way in the back just had to like raise their hand or whatever and the, the professor would call on them and you could hear them clear as a bell asking their question, which is really cool. Um, I think one of the requirements to get onto EDX is that it has to be closed captioned for uh, hearing impaired as well. So it's just like watching a TV show with closed captioning. So really, really great stuff. So that um, EDX, I don't have too much experience with. I just kind of dabbled in it a little bit. But one, uh, one thing that I've talked about ad nauseum, which I won't go into too much depth about, is Coursera, which I believe is just like EDX in its format and such. It's just a competitor or whatever. It's another service. Not re I can't really tell you what the difference is between them, except that they have different content uh, with different uh, educational facilities. So, of course, the one that I love to talk about, and the only uh, MOOC course that I ever cared to complete, what was it called? Uh, yeah. Online Games, Literature, New Media, and Narrative. So it was a, a, it was a university-level English class. It was only seven weeks, and it was contrasting Lord of the Rings in its novel, movie, and online game formats and talking about storytelling and narrative and the differences between them, how the story changed between those media, and also like how, it, how, how the, the plot changed between those, but also how the story has to be told in different ways based on the medium itself and, and its uh, advantages and shortcomings. That was so stimulating. 
and I've said before and I'll say again, you know, the dream that every kid has is, you know, put on your, okay, class, let's put on our virtual reality goggles and now we're in ancient Mongolia. Or now we're in the dinosaur age and you see dinosaurs all over you. Well, that's like totally what this was. Because the format of a lot of the, of the bulk of the course was watching videos and they were mostly English English like literature analysis lecture videos by the uh, professor. Um, many of the uh, videos were also the uh, professor sitting in a room with a small study group of like six or seven students and he would kind of ask a question and they would go around the table or he would select one student to just comment on it and to ask uh, to answer the question which was great because he heard all these different opinions from people that had read and been experienced to different forms of literature or different kinds of video games so that was super stimulating um but also there was the audience participation sort of a thing where part of it was to do the to of course read the book and to read these epic poems and stuff and to contrast them versus what you learned in class that day there were also written uh written uh, assignments they were like choose uh, choose your own adventure sorry there were multiple choice qu uh quizzes and stuff where you had to answer questions based on the material that you learned in the class and th those were graded and you had to have a certain grade in order to pass Although you could redo them once or twice until you get a better grade. Um, but there was also, um, you also had to play the massively multiplayer online game of Lord of the Rings Online and get to a certain part in the story by a certain date because there would be group work where the professor and some students and your fellow learners would smash monsters together and would participate in the story aspects of the game and have conversations inside the game with voice chat which was like literally that whole virtual reality reliving the past kind of a thing. Like, that's so friggin' cool. That was like the education of my dreams. I found that so exciting. That is so innovative and something I had never imagined would be a thing. So boy, was that cool. And then the final, um, or the, the major uh, assignments and the final assignment, there were essays that you had to write, short and long answer questions, and they were graded by your peers. So when you submit an answer, or when you submit your homework, you have to also grade three other people's homework in order for your assignment to be considered complete. And then it would kind of find an, I don't remember if it finds the aggregate or if it gives you the highest score that one of the three people gave you, but they encourage you to uh, elaborate on your feedback so that people know why you graded them, what you did. And you can agree with or dismiss the feedback you get however you please. But in the end, you kind of get three different insights on, on uh, responses to your work, which is great. So I love that. So they also have like a huge variety of courses that you can take, languages and audio engineering and uh, the hard sciences and philosophy and literature, all kinds of stuff. So what an awesome thing that is. So I have a little PDF file that, uh, that uh, is my uh, free certificate of achievement saying, oh, I kicked ass on this course, actually. What does it say? View Statement of Accomplishment. Oh, it says that I completed it with 91.6% grade, and I completed it with distinction. So that's pretty awesome. So I was I was honestly proud of that. I was proud of that accomplishment, because I put a lot of work into that. It was a lot of reading and a lot of writing. In, for my final project, I wrote a Twine game. A lot of people created a video game based on what they learned in the class and d demonstrating some concept. Mine was, mine was a reinterpretation of some epic poem, but told through the eyes of um, a guy sitting in the food court of a shopping mall where some weird guy in a pirate costume was trying to give you free coupons. <laughs> I don't really remember how I, 
tied that together exactly, but apparently it was relevant. All right, so the last thing that I wanted to bring up very quickly was educational video games. Mm -hmm. um, and there is, there is so-called edutainment titles, like um, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego or uh, Oregon Trail, but those are still games. Those are very gamey games. The one that I wanted to bring up uh, is something that is very innovative. It's from the mid-90s, I believe, called Quandaries. Quandaries game. This game was made by... Come on. Not the FBI and not the CIA, but some other... Some other big um, government... Oh, Department of Justice. There we go. Big government uh, organization. It's really fascinating. It's like an ethics training game where you can choose to participate in any of, I think, six or eight different careers that work for the Department of Justice. And it just gives you a bunch of scenarios. And it looks a lot like a point-and-click VGA adventure game. Um, and it operates very much like one. But someone will walk up to you and you'll have a little conversation with them. And they'll say something... Like, uh, you'll, you'll be talking with uh, someone from uh, the private sector, and they'll say, oh, thank you so much for spending uh, time with me to hear me out. I'd like to give you this gift of, uh, of uh, a concert ticket or something. And you can say, okay, thank you very much. I accept this gift. Or you can say, no, I can't. Because of uh, rules, I can't accept any gift. Or you can say, uh, well, thank you for this, but I have to, I have to uh, refuse it because I'm only allowed to accept gifts that are $25 or less. And so you answer the question, and you can succeed or fail. But even if you fail and answer the wrong thing, the worst that happens is that it quotes the thing that you should, like the rule that you should be familiar with, and continues along in the story. So it's not like you have to keep doing it until you get a hundred percent. It encourages you to fail in some ways, so that you can learn what happens if you do the wrong thing, which is just as important, I think, to knowing exactly the right things to do. So even though it is much more educational and by the book. It still has a little bit of humor. It has, like, photograph uh, photographs for its graphics. It's actually fun, which is the craziest thing. It's fun to play. So I will definitely put a link to that in the show notes. All right. We're up. Uh, we're rubbing up against the two-hour mark here. Uh, is that all we have to say on the topic? I think we're good. I think we're very good, mm -hmm. especially me. Yeah. So I actually just double-checked and it's Memrise, which is the site that I was thinking of. Oh, right. We will, of course, put links to all of this stuff in the show notes today. Yep. Oh, I forgot how many languages they have here. And then they also have uh, other categories, too, and uh, aren't just languages. Oh, I remember you doing this one. And it has different material from Duolingo for Languages, but I remember the audio files were recorded by, like, just anyone. Yeah. And so some people use really terrible microphones. You can't even tell what the hell they're saying. Mm -hmm. So it'd be like they'd say something out loud and it would say, what is this word? And you, it was so muffled that you couldn't even hear the word properly or it sounded like three other words because you couldn't hear the consonants. Mm -hmm. So I guess there's pluses and minuses. But those, that's awesome. I'm going to take a look at this because they have lots of Japanese stuff on there. Yeah. All right. That'll do her. Yes, it will. Except that we have to. Oh, first we have to, of course, thank uh, Chris Olson and Father Beast so much. We were very happy to hear from you, as always. Yes, we are. Can't wait to hear from you uh, again next time. Mm -hmm. Oh, come here, baby. She pulled one of your earrings out. You better help. You better get her right now. Come what on. a stupid. Give it to me. Give it. Mine. 
What a stupid. Did she take the back off? Yes. All right, we're going to have to figure that out. All right, so. (laughs) Fuck, she did it without me noticing. Yeah, I know. She's. (laughs) Stupid bird. Bird is too damn smart. I Mm. got studs so she wouldn't be able to pull the backs off. And she did. All right, well, let's figure that out before she eats a bunch of metal, shall we? Yeah. All right. Got it. Good. No, you didn't. That's blue. Okay, before you before you discussed us further, <laughs> I will just take care of this so that we have more talking and less squawking. Okay. And maybe you should tell our guest that next week we're having some... Stop that! I'm getting... To, oh, ne- yes. Fine. Next week we're having a special, special guest that we've never had before, and neither will you, so neener, neener. Yes. <laughs> so, if you want to reach us on the web, we're squarefm.demodulated.com. Email squarefm at demodulated.com. And Twitter, we are at squarewavesfm. So... Love you guys like crazy. We very much appreciate your mouths and fingers and ears. That sounded worse than it uh, was intended to sound. And we'll talk to you next week. Yep. All right. Bye-bye, guys. Bye.